0: I'm delighted to be joined today by Gary Ung, Senior Economist for APAC Thematic Research at Natixis. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Nice to see you in our Admiralty studio there. And Aninda Mitra, Head of Asia Macro and Investment Strategy at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Good morning, Aninda. Good morning. Great to have you both on the show today because lots going on. Aninda, how concerned are you about China's property sector at the moment and how financial issues there may impact the broader market?
1: Well, it has been an issue of concern for a while. Uh, There has been a bit of uh, a respite for sentiment given uh, the recent easing measures which have been undertaken in the last week or so. Uh, But again, I think that possibly benefits some of the top tier cities Pushes up interest in viewing and possibly even uh, restarts some housing starts again. Uh, gets construction going again. But for the broader market, uh, and considering that this is almost one quarter of Chinese GDP, uh, it's still a it's still going to be a tough slog. I, I think uh, you know getting this, this sector up and running, getting confidence back uh, in the developers, uh, many of whom still remain on the ropes, uh, will take some time. And the reluctance to, you know, bring about faster price adjustments, um, at least officially, uh, could prolong this whole adjustment process. Uh, And and that's what leaves us a bit more concerned about the long-term macro outlook, even though, We think that uh, efforts seem to be underway to try and get to that 5% growth target for this year.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's been a couple of little bright sparks on the property sector horizon in China. The Evergrande Group, for example, closed up 83% after meeting its debt repayments, but still very early days to see how that's going to pan out. Okay, let's go on to Gary. Although China has cut mortgage rates a few times since 2022, households do not seem to bother as home purchases remain stagnant. Gary.
2: Well, indeed, I think this is a very big problem for China's home market and the developers. And if you look at why this is happening, it's really about the mechanism that it works in. China is simply quite different from the rest of the world. Even though we see there's numerous uh, interest rate cut, we're only talking about the new mortgage rate. So you got a bunch of uh, homeowners, uh, like uh, basically they bought their properties a few years ago, but they are paying probably, you know, 100 or 150 basis point more than uh, the uh, current home buyers. so this has prompt problems about the early mortgage repayment that people just want to pay mm-hmm. off the mortgage. Like also, people are not that confident about the future because of the different type of restrictions beyond the mortgage rate and you can also think of different restrictions on the uh, ownership transfer and also the classification of home uh, like the first home buyers but at least what we see right now is that things start to change and then hopefully that can bring some you know a renewed momentum and confidence back to home buyers but I think we still need to wait and observe.
0: Because the property sector has a big impact on the overall economy in China, doesn't it, Gary?
2: Well, indeed, I think uh, there are numerous measures out there on estimating the spillover effect from the uh, real estate sector to the general economy. I mean, it can go up to one third of the uh, economic growth um, per year. So therefore when you have this growth engine kind of hoarded for uh, one or maybe even two years, they will have a other effect on uh, fiscal revenue which will impact the ability from the government to roll out stimulus. There will also be a problem about the wealth effect of household because um, real estate forms 60% of household assets in China so if you see your property is not appreciating people are not then confident about the future. So I think um, that will have an impact both on investment investment and also consumption.
0: That's right. Yes, definitely a link there between domestic consumption and confidence, as you say. Now, well, I spoke about a couple of little sparks that we had recently, which was the Evergrande Group actually paying its debts yesterday, and its share price is up 83%, but from a small base. Do you see any other bright sparks in the China economy at the moment, starting with you, Gary?
2: Well, I think indeed, uh, we need to acknowledge that the drag in real estate may not be fully, uh, you know, offset by some of this new, uh, like, price spot But indeed, there are still uh, growth areas within the Chinese economy, even though the general economic growth environment may not be as quick as before. So um, I think for sectors such as renewable, electric vehicles, and also generally on surfaces, uh, seems to be holding up quite well from the uh, structural uh, perspective. So even though we will need time to actually see these sectors growing quick, and also bigger in the future to actually support the general uh, growth but still I think if investors become more selective in the future they worry about policy risk generally in China these are some of the sectors that may be a little bit more regulatory neutral.
0: Okay how about you um, Alinda are you seeing any sparks?
1: Yeah, no, I think I think uh, uh, Gary's touched upon the right notes. I uh, would also highlight that uh, China's export competitiveness is becoming visible across a range of areas. Uh, you know, that the auto show in Munich, Chinese EVs were very dominant, uh, and that sort of thing continues to gain market share. Uh, at the margin, it may not move the needle very much on the overall growth outlook, but it does make a bit of a difference in terms of the growth contribution from net exports to the overall uh, growth outcome for this year and in coming year, for that matter. Mm,
0: that's right, yes. I mean, uh, China is certainly doing well in the EV sector, um, unlike Germany, <laughs> which isn't looking so good. <laughs> um, I know there's talks of stagflation at the moment for Germany. Anyway, but let's let's keep on uh, China, because I, I want to go on to you, Gary, and say that China has turbocharged its RMB internet Internationalization progress in 2023, including greater usage of its currency in cross border payments and trade settlement deals. Now, I talk often to our guests about uh, Barry about the dollar being the global currency and a lot of other countries trying to change that. Now, the de dollarization trend has yet to translate into a strong RMB. Why do you think that is, Gary? And when do you think it will impact?
2: Well, indeed, I think um, as in the Evergrande stock uh, RMB internationalization process is also coming up from a very low base. So therefore, when we see the uh, growth, um, you know, in terms of this uh, from the small base, and definitely we are seeing some progress. Especially, we see uh, you know uh, different trade deals from Argentina, Brazil uh, with China, and which basically means that in the future, at least for the trade with China, there can be more RMB usage. But at the same time, I also feel that for the uh, dollar usage nowadays is still carry a lot of benefit. It's not that easy to be uh, replaced. It will still be quite a strong uh, global currency that we see at the moment and this is why uh, we still see that uh, the R&B is uh, driven by a lot of cyclical factors. When you look at direct investment, uh, uh, basically we do not see that much uh, like capital flowing into china at the moment uh, yield differential is pushing bond outflow towards the uh, u.s and also even if you look at the trade surplus actually exporters are not, not that not that willing to actually uh, uh convert their dollar receipt into RMB. so uh generally i think from the cyclical perspective um there's some pressure on RMB. b uh, uh like uh, there's some progress on internationalization but it will uh, still be quite a long way
0: and ninder anything to build on that
1: yeah, no, we've been skeptics about this whole de-dollarization uh, phenomenon, which has been making the waves ever since uh, Russia got sanctioned. I think the biggest driver of the use of the RMB really is Russia. Uh, it's settling most of its international trade in, in RMB. Yes, there are other countries which have expressed uh, growing interest in, in, in de-dollarizing, but a lot of that usually arises because of dollar debt distress. Uh, Countries like Argentina would rather, you know, de- de-dollarize so that they can access international liquidity on more favorable terms. And insofar as you get a swap line from the PBOC to do that, that's exactly what they're trying to utilize to avoid having to access the market and raise dollars to pay for their imports and and continue living beyond their means, which is historically what the Argentines have always done. So, you know, we are, we are a bit skeptical that this process is going to spread out dramatically. Yes, China is the biggest trading nation in the world. It has a lot of swap lines with many countries who are, you know, they're enticing these countries to use the, the, the RMB in international trade. And you can indeed do so via the swap lines. But those swaps ultimately will have to be backed by hard currency assets because the RMB at the end of the day is still not convertible. So we, we're, you know, even though the the usage of the RMB is rising, and that you can see that in the in the CIPS data, the, the cross border inter, uh, uh, interbank payment systems data, as well as some some SWIFT data as well, the reality still is that CNY holdings, CNY assets uh, in in central bank reserves is still very very low, and our estimate is that most of that is is Russian assets, anyways. Hmm. So it's still got a long way to go and uh, it's a good beginning, but uh, it's you know, the dollar is still uh, rock solid at the moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was some talk at the BRICS meeting, I think it was last week, about them having their own currency. But I don't think we should hold our breath for That's that one. That's
1: completely sterile. I mean, you're know, you going to have to <laughs> full sovereignty for five different countries with completely different monetary regimes and objectives. And, and, and they come nowhere close to what the Europeans have managed to accomplish in the last uh, 20 or 30 years.
0: Yeah. Got your point there, Aninda. Anyway, staying with you, Aninda, I read in a report that you believe macro divergence will become more and more prominent over the coming weeks. Can you explain what you mean by that and how that may play out?
1: So uh, just last week, we we got that Goldilocks phenomenon with, mm. um, you know, yeah. the employment numbers in the U.S. looking like it's cooling down. The, at least the, labor, the slack in the labor market seems to be building up. With a jump in the unemployment rate, but it didn't come because of layoffs. It came because of more worker well, workforce participation. Now, but and a, you know this is not the same as immaculate disinflation, right? Hmm. So even though you get a Goldilocks moment, the reality still is that the U.S. economy is still running hot. Uh, we wouldn't be surprised uh, if there's at least one or two more rate hikes. Uh, if not in September, then most likely in, in November or possibly in December. And the reason for that is the u.s economy is still chugging along because of some exceptional reasons tight labor markets the terms of trade have not hit the us as badly uh, as it has hit europe or japan for that matter uh of course everybody's paying more money out of their wallets for uh, higher gas prices but the reality is some of that money in the u.s stays within the economy because it's the shale oil companies that are making this money and they're driving more employment and that sort of thing and just you can't see the same thing for europe where the, the scale of the energy price shock has been much larger to begin with. So all of this, you know, we think for larger growth differentials, uh, the, the likelihood of one or two more rate hikes seem seem more convincing in our view for the in the case of uh, the US versus Europe. And of course, you know, higher rates v- versus Japan or versus in, in the US versus Japan or, or versus China, all of this fuels a much stronger dollar. Uh, more divergence and ultimately a, a stronger dollar, which is what's been playing out in the markets for the last few days anyways.
0: Okay. I love the Goldilocks parallel. Is the porridge too hot, too cold or too salty or whatever it is? I really can't remember the full uh, nursery story. Anyway, <laughs> what are some of the most interesting trends you're seeing in the equity in bond markets in Asia at the moment, Gary?
2: Well, I think indeed I totally agree with the potentially stronger dollar story that we see, um, you know, in the past few days. But at the same time, I think in the past few weeks there are also some investors trying to position themselves into non-dollar asset in more in the medium term, especially when the U.S. continue to hike. But uh, some of the Asian central banks actually are probably done with the rate uh, hike cycle already, such as Korea and Australia, etc. So I think we do see a bit of repositioning. Uh, to diversify the exposure from dollar towards generally uh, Asia bonds and uh, equities. Aninda.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's certainly uh, a good point. Although I would argue that it won't be that easy for many countries to actually cut rates, ease policy in the face of continuing U.S. macro exceptionalism. One one trend I would cite. Is that if you look at the DXY index, you know it goes back all the way to the 1970s, and uh, if you plot a long-term trend on that, say, I'd say take a take a 10-year average, and what you'll see is that the peaks in the dollar cycle uh, aren't what they used to be, but the appreciation cycle has been nonstop since August 2014. And that still continues. We're we are like frogs sitting in a, in a pot and the water temperatures continue to go up. So you can you can you can find, you know, other other central banks who could who, who, are, who are not going to continue hiking. But it's hard to see a, a cut. Thank
0: you. It, it, the it getting We've got some great parallels today. Goldilocks and boiling frogs. Well, thank you for the great discussion from Gary Young, Senior Economist for APAC Thematic Research at Tixis, and Aninda Mitra, Head of Asia Macro and Investment Strategy at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Both, hope we can both have you back on the show.